Well, it's good to see you all again this morning. It's good to be able to uh, worship together through song, to be able to get to know one another and talk and connect, to be able to hear stories about um, Wildwood and things like that. Uh, if you haven't heard the song that uh, Dan was referencing, Pastor Dan, uh, it's called So Will I, parentheses, 100 billion X. It means 100 billion times, but it's way too long to spell out. Uh, but no, it's by Hillsong, and it's a beautiful song. Um, it's like six, seven, eight minutes long, and there's no line that's repeated twice in the song. It is incredible. Um, God has used that song uh, in really incredible ways in my life over the past uh, about seven to eight months. So Hillsong, so will I. That's all I have to say today, guys. I hope you have a great day. No. Um, so uh, everybody, um, if we've not met yet, my name is JP, and, and it's an honor to be able to, to be here with you this morning as we um, sing together, as we get to know one another, as we dive into God's word together. Um, so what I want to do is, uh, for some of you, maybe you are um, just joining us, haven't been with us for a while, maybe you've kind of missed here and there. Uh, what I want to do is, what I like to do is kind of recap where we've been, get, kind of give a previously uh, a part of this series so that we can all be on the same page when we dive into what God has for us this morning. And so um, we are in a series called It Starts Here. And the idea behind this series is that whether we, uh, maybe you're here and you have someone who is just kind of learning about Jesus and God, not really sure what to believe, if to believe, any of those things there. Um, if that's you, thank you so much for coming. We're so glad that you are here this morning. Uh, for some of you, maybe you come to church for a little while and then you've left and you're kind of off and on and it's not been a real uh, consistent part of your life and then that's you. Again, we're glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, and then for some of you, you come to church every week and, and that's just part of who you are, what you do. But all of us, whether you're here in this room or whether you're listening online, uh, all of us, if we're in this room, it, there's some propensity to which, some degree to which we are open to what God has for us and some degree to which we may be asking the question, how do I get a deeper relationship with God? And we've talked about throughout this series, this is the sixth week, the final week of our series, this idea of if you get a close relationship with God, it starts here. It starts with our understanding of worship, and it starts with who God is and how we worship him and how that worship changes our lives and has an impact far beyond a Sunday morning time slot. And so... This morning, uh, what I want to do is, again, take a few moments to recap where we've been. So we talked about, we've been answering the questions who, what, why, when, how, and today is talking about where, but we started off with who, and this who is this idea that everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. That all of us, the old English word for worship is this word worth Skype, and that just means to ascribe worth to. So all of us ascribe worth to something in our lives, whether it's with our time, whether it's with our passion and our energy, whether it's with our money, whatever it may be, we all ascribe worship, ascribe worth to something. So everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. And we looked at the golden calf incident uh, in Exodus 32, this idea that even if we say we're honoring God, if we're using God, to get the idols that we want. We're not actually pursuing God. We're pursuing idols and trying to allow God or use God for our own ends. This idea that who we ascribe worship to and worth to is everything. Then we talked about the what. The next week was what. And it's this idea of I had a misconception thinking that singing was the only encapsulation of worship. That worship was just songs that I sang on a Sunday morning and that was it. And so we talked about the idea that the call to worship isn't just lifting up our voices. It's laying down our lives. 
Lifting up our voice is part of it, but it's not all of it. And so we looked at Romans 12, and we looked at this idea of living our lives, as a, or offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, and to see, find out what God's pleasing and perfect and good will is. And so we talked about, in order to be like Christ, we must lay down our lives as Christ did, and lay down our lives. That's the who, that's the what. Then we talked about the why, and the why was this idea that we worship God. Why? Because we've been changed by who he is, what he's done, and how he loves. Now we recognize that God is so big, who he is, he's so big that he can hold the entire universe in the palm of his hand and he stoops down in order to be, a, to, to be a part of the universe, yet he's so intimate and imminent and close to us that he knows every thought in our heads, every head on our heads, every day of our lives, every wound of our hearts and every cry of our souls. And that God who is so big is also that loving. And so we recognize because of who he is and then recognize that what he's done and how he loves that we know that and we worship him because of that. And not just because we know it, but because we've been changed by it. That you can know something and not allow it to change you in the same way that I know eating all those donuts isn't healthy doesn't mean it just changes me from eating donuts. But this idea of we've been changed by something. We've been changed by what he's done and how he loves. That's the why. Then we looked at the when. The when was this idea that, you know, some of us, we have this idea that in our relationship with God, that there are some, some sacred, holy activities that we do. You know, we, we have our quiet time and we check that off the list. And we stand up and sing and we check that off the list. And we clap sometimes and we check that off the list. And we teach one another and we check that off the list. And we hold each other accountable and then we check that off the list. And it's this idea that there's a list of sacred activities in our lives. But then we separate that from our everyday lives. We separate that from the secular. We separate that from how we are at work. We separate that from how we are in our home. We separate that how we are with our neighbors, how with our friends. And so it becomes this idea that worship can falsely be understood as, as a list of sacred activities that I check my box and it encapsulates only a small percentage of our week. Maybe it's two hours of our week when we come and we worship and we get to say hi to people and then it doesn't affect the way we live the other 166 hours. So we talked about the when is this idea that Worship is not just performing these sacred activities and checking off these boxes once a week. It's recognizing the sacred and the secular in every aspect of our lives throughout the week. And then last week, we talked about how, how we worship God. We talked about how there's noise and hurry and crowds and how there's so much going on that so often we fail to stop to see what God is trying to teach us. We fail to listen. We fail to obey. And so we use the story of Moses when he got uh, experienced the burning bush and he stopped when he saw the burning bush. He didn't just keep going. He didn't just take a picture of it, put it away in his pocket, remind himself for later. He, he stopped. He walked over, then he listened. He actually saw what it was that God was trying to teach him. He obeyed what it was that God called him to do. And because he stopped, because he listened, because he obeyed, he was able to worship. And so in Exodus 3, when he had that moment with the burning bush, God says, go free my people. He says, how am I going to know it's you? He says, here's the sign that I'm with you, that when you bring the people out, you will worship me on this mountain. And so he stopped. He listened to that. He obeyed. He went into Egypt. He helped. Uh, he had the plagues. He got through the Red Sea. They got to the promised land. And in Exodus 24, the people were able to go on that same mountain that was once promised. And they worshiped God together. And so Moses had this powerful worship experience recognized because he stopped, because he listened, because he obeyed. He was able to worship in a way that was more powerful than, if, than anything that he could have imagined. 
And we recognize in that truth there that we receive a promise that God is going to do something and we hope that the sign comes right away, but in between the promise and the sign is the step of obedience, which is where faith comes. That God, when he told that to Moses, Moses could have said, I hear you, God, that sounds awesome. When the sign becomes a little bit more obvious to me today, then I'll obey you. Then I'll pursue you. Then I'll see the sign. But no, it's the promise, then obedience sign. And so we talked about it using the acronym of stop, listen, obey, and worship. If we don't slow down, we won't know how to worship. If we don't stop, listen, and obey, we won't be able to truly experience worship the way that God has created us to experience. And so this is where we've been throughout this five-week series so far. We're culminating it with our sixth week this morning talking about the where. But before we go there, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning, God. I thank you for every person that is uh, in this room or listening online, Lord, recognizing that uh, every person that is listening is a person who was formed by you, loved by you, and a person with whom you would like to draw a closer relationship, God. And so, Lord, I pray that in this time that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in an incredible way, Lord, and that you would um, move in our hearts uh, to recognize what it is that you have for us and what it is that you would like us to change about our lives in recognition of what you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So all that was the introduction to get us to the where part. Now, as I'm talking about the where, I want you just to start thinking in your mind, just a place, a location that has had a special meaning to you. Just just start thinking about it. Um, And as you're thinking about it, I want to share with you one of mine. So for us, for me, I grew up right down the street. I was on this little court, a little cul-de-sac, and you turn left, and about, I don't know, a thousand feet away was this park. And I loved going to this park as a kid. This was a park that I would go to all the time. It was a park where almost all my birthday parties from like two through 12 were there. Um, and we would just you know, have food and relax. There was a, a playground area. And I would try to like do an obstacle course where you like don't touch the ground, but you go from one end to the other. And this is when playgrounds were made of like wood and had sand, so they were not safe by any means. But uh, it was one of those where that was, we, I loved this park. And this is a park where I asked uh, Stephanie, my wife, to be my girlfriend. And so uh, it's called Homeridge Park, and it's had a lot of real meaning for me, right? And so then you look at the picture, and the left-hand side, that is me. Um, and on the right-hand side was Shaylin, when I had an opportunity to bring Shaylin to this park. So she got to swing in the same swings uh, that I was in when I was a little kid. Um, and so it's this, it's this cool moment of, uh, I don't know if I'm excited or terrified in that picture. We're just going <laughs> to... We're going to assume I'm brave. Um, but this picture just it reminds me, like, that's a special place. This Home Ranch Park is a special place uh, right around the street uh, from where my mom still lives there. And so I uh, ride right around the street from my mom's house growing up. Now, there's another place that, uh, that was, uh, has meant a lot to me, and that was my previous church, uh, Christ Church of the Valley. And, and there's a specific event that Shaylin and I became a part of uh, when they're four years old, when daughters were four years old and older, they had this pretty pink princess prom. I think I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago. Pretty pink princess prom, literally, I, those are probably the only two times I've said it correctly. Um, but... It was this event where you take your daughter out, you have a date night, you, you teach them and you share with them uh, words of value and encouragement, you, you show them what it's like to be treated well by a man so they, they don't get surprised or they know what to expect. And so there's a couple pictures of us there and we went there a few weeks ago as we drove up and visited uh, our old church. But think about that place, you guys already have that place in mind that maybe has meant a lot to you. Have you ever gone back to that place and then that place didn't feel like home anymore? 
You know, you go to a place where it means a lot to you. And, and so I went to, you know, you go to Homeridge Park and you're like, wow, this is a lot smaller than I remembered it being. This obstacle course is a lot easier than I would have thought. Or, or you go, you know, I went to the church and I loved my previous church. And I loved being able to see people. But the truth of the matter is, is it wasn't home anymore because this is home. And so it was different. Um, <laughs> thanks, guys. Um, <laughs> But it was this different moment where all of a sudden the location was still meaningful to me, but it didn't have the same impact necessarily on my emotions and where I was at. Because all of a sudden, like, oh, I don't, you know, other things have changed. And, and this is the idea that sometimes when you go off to college, you never really come home because by the time you come home, college, life is a little bit different from where you left. And so this whole idea is if you can think about a place that has meant a lot to you, a location that has had a, an important impact on you. You know, I want you to think about that place. Maybe for some of you, I know friends who they go to uh, the same Vince's Spaghetti restaurant every year for Valentine's Day, and they've been married for, for 12, 13 years. So maybe you have a place like that. Maybe it's a place where, um, you know, it's a, an incredible vacation. Or maybe it's something where, um, I mean, whatever it is, a place where you grew up as a kid that really has a special meaning. But I want you to now shift those gears a little bit. So instead of thinking about a place that's just meaningful to you in general, think about a place that is special to you specifically in regards to your relationship with God. You know, maybe it's the place, it's the church that you first gave your life to the Lord. Maybe it was that, that camp where the gospel first became alive in your life. Maybe it's that moment when you got baptized and you remember that God spoke to you. Maybe it was that first time where worship and through song really meant, meant something to you. Maybe for some of our, our youth that just came back, maybe it's this idea of Hume Lake. It's a wildwood camp with the lights above you and the lights go off and you're singing So Will I a hundred billion times. Maybe for some of us it's an outcry tour. It's a concert where their worship was just so strong and powerful that, that we felt so close to God and we can never question that God was real because, man, it was so tangible. And it's great to have those memories. Those memories can be pillars and rocks that remind us of God's faithfulness and presence in our lives. But if we were to only worship God when we were in those places, we would miss the boat. If we were only worshiping God when we were at Hume Lake or Wildwood, that means we'd be worshiping God a couple times a year for a few years of our lives. If we were only worshiping God in our childhood church where we gave our lives to the Lord, then once we grew out of the church, why would we stay and still be a part of a church? Or if we were to only focus on a location, then whenever that location changed, whenever the meaning changed, whenever the emotion changed, we'd get to a point where then, how would that impact or change our worship? And the concern is that if we tied our worship to a place, then God wouldn't hold the proper place in our hearts. If we tied it to a location, then as locations change, as life change, that then the emotion and the strength of our relationship with God could potentially change. So this morning, as we talk about the where, it's that worship isn't tied to a location, it's tied to a destination. Worship isn't tied to a location, it's tied to a destination. And see, Jesus talks about this very specific thing. And one of the most famous conversations he has is with the woman at the well in John, in John chapter 4. So if you would have your Bibles with you, you go to John chapter 4. We're going to be on page 1652, 1652 on the church Bible. Regardless, uh, if you don't have the church Bible, you have your own Bible, Bible app. John chapter 4 and 19. Now, let me preface this by saying that John chapter 4 is incredibly rich and an incredible story. And again, one of the most famous conversations that Jesus has. But we're not going to dive into all of that today. We're going to take one moment of that, one conversation point that the, the woman brings up, and we're going to 
extrapolate that to see the story of God, but from Genesis to Revelation. So we're going we're gonna to be having some fun together this morning. So John, John 4, starting in verse 19, this is right after Jesus tells the woman that um, he recognizes that she doesn't have a husband. In fact, she's had five husbands and the man he's, she's living with now is not her husband. So she's, she's blown away by this fact that this person just called her out on her struggle and on her sin. Um, and this is how she responds in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Let's stop there for a second. Have you ever had someone lovingly and truthfully share and open up about maybe an area in which you were struggling? Maybe, maybe a sin, maybe a, a habit, a hang up, a hurt that you've been struggling with. And have you ever had that person say, you know, this seems to be the problem and this seems to be what needs to change. And then our, our walls go up. And we have this self-defense where we say, we take it away from the sin that's specific to me, and then we try to deflect it into just being a conversation about spiritual practices. Where we kind of deflect the truth and we kind of bounce off what maybe God might be trying to convict us about, and then we just be, make it more about, well, you know, but at least I go to church every, more, every week. At least I sit in the front row. At least I do this and I that. I come on a Thursday night or I'm a part of a Bible study or whatever it is. And we deflect a convicting truth and replace it with a safer feeling of sacred activity that we are still doing that's good. And so we talk about this. That's not the point of the sermon. That, that extra bonus nugget was for free, so that's great. Um, but we look at, that's the idea where she's saying, well, well you're saying that you, the Jews, you tell us that we have to worship on this mountain, but our ancestors say it's this one. Again, she's breaking down a truth that could be convicting and change her life and making it into a religious discussion. Verse 21, Jesus' reply, he says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must Spirit in the Spirit and in truth. Now, that idea of in spirit and truth, again, that is, a, that is an incredible thing we could dive into another time with our many years together here at Pomerado Christian Church. But for here, this morning, what we want to focus on is this question that was brought up to Jesus about where is it that we're supposed to worship? Where is that location that is considered holy? Where is that place that we can go to and say, now I'm a good believer because I've gone to this place and I've worshiped at this location? See, for Jewish and Samaritan, if you don't, many of you know, but maybe not all of you know, that there is a lot of enmity between those two cultures, that the Jewish culture um, combined with the Assyrian after the... uh, Assyrian um, exile in 722 BC, that the Jewish people would intermarry with the Assyrians, and then from there came the Samaritan people. So there's a lot of enmity, and it says, well, you believe this, and we believe that. And so the woman, what she's, what she's showing up here is that there's a prejudice against the Samaritan people, according to the Jewish people, and there's this idea that the Mount Gerizim is where the Samaritans were told that they were supposed to worship, because that was the place, according to their culture, that Isaac was laid down on the altar, like we talked about earlier in the series, and that that was the place where he was laid on the altar, so that was the right place to worship. Whereas the Jewish culture believed that it's in a different place in Jerusalem, and that where the Temple Mount is now, where the Temple is, um, and the remaining western wall there, is that same mountain where 
Isaac was laid down. So there's two cultural differences, two different ideas of a holy place. So let's dive into a couple moments where we may recognize it or not, but there are many people, many different religions that have a holy place that is this origin of this location-based worship. And then the origin of that we'll talk to in just a couple minutes. Before we do that, location-based worship. So for example, let's look at a few pictures here. So there's a picture here uh, for Buddhism. That Buddhism, they have, uh, there's eight great places that you're encouraged to, to take a pilgrimage to. And this one's the Mahabodhi Temple. And it houses the Bodhi tree, uh, which supposedly was where the Buddha became and experienced full enlightenment, where Siddhartha Gautama went. And this is the tree upon which, underneath which, according to the legend, is that this is where he received enlightenment. So they created a temple around it. So this became the most popular pilgrimage place for Buddhists. If you want to go out to a holy location, this is where you would go, or one of the places. The next one we see is uh, uh, Druids would go to Stonehenge, which is... Beautiful, but that would be a place where it'd be a place of pilgrimage for, for people who uh, believe in Druidism. Then we see with Islam that there is Mecca, that one of the five pillars, one of the five things that Muslims are expected to do throughout their life, uh, one of them is that at least once you have to go to Mecca. And the encouragement is to go as much as you can, but, but there's, a, there's one of the five things that signifies that someone is a Muslim is that they go to Mecca and, and they're a part of that pilgrimage to that place. And then Emo Judaism, we just mentioned this, the Western Wall the, or the Wailing Wall uh, that's at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem as a place where Jewish people would go and this would be a holy location for them. Now for us as Christians, can we go to Jerusalem and have an incredible time to be able to walk where Jesus walked and to, to experience that? Absolutely. But it's not a pilgrimage that's required because it's not location-based worship is not the worship that we experience. It's not because everyone as a Christian, you have to go to this specific place. Would I love to go to, to Jerusalem? Absolutely. That's a bucket list item. So is Rome, being able to see where Paul was in prison and be able to experience what that was like. I mean, there are incredible locations, but they're not requirements for us to attend in order to worship. So let's take a moment. We look at how did we get to this place where Samaritans and Jewish people or Buddhists or Muslim or all these different people groups, how did we get to a place where there's such a division in location-based worship? So we're going to look at the origin of location-based worship because this conversation in John 4 typifies a greater question and a greater divide that did not start with John 4. And it started all the way back in Genesis 11. Genesis 11, I'm not going to turn there and read verse by verse, but Genesis 11 is a story in which uh, it's the Tower of Babel, in which that this is after the flood, and this is after the, the, the land, the world started to get repopulated. And, and so in Genesis 11, the people are all of the same language, and they all decide that they're going to come together to this one location. They say, let us build a tower, and let us, here's the big one, make a name for ourselves. That way that we won't have to be dispersed. Now, what is it that God called us to do in Genesis 2? He said to go and be fruitful and multiply, to spread out and to populate the earth. So they're breaking that commandment that was originally intended in Genesis. And then they say, well, let's stay together and then let's make a name for ourselves. Let's elevate our name and our goals and our desires. And it's a good thing that that's something that doesn't exist anymore today, right? It's a good thing that we don't try to build our own lives upon our own goals. And we don't try to make a name for ourselves. And it's a good thing that we don't fall into the temptation to just make everything about us, right? Because the truth of the matter is, is that 
the Tower of Babel, when they say, let us make a name for ourselves, it's this idea that they wanted to build a tower that touched heaven because they, like all of us, have the propensity to want to make ourselves the Lord of our own lives, the one upon the throne, and the one who can dictate how my life goes and the way I want it and how. It's the same sin that was the serpent had tested, the, um, t- t- had sinned, um, sorry, had deceived Adam and Eve with. It's the idea that two things that the serpent said, like, you will surely not die, which tells us the idea that we, we want to believe there's no consequences for our actions. You'll surely not die if you eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And the second thing it says, then if you do this, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. That you can be the God of your life. You can be the Lord of your life. You can be the captain of your soul. You can be the one that determines your fate. This is the temptation and the struggle that we all face. The one in which we put ourselves upon the throne and we take God off of his. That whenever we turn away, whenever we sin, it's I know better than God. Or there is no consequence for this action. And we put ourselves above God. And this is shown to us in this Tower of Babel because they come together with one language and they say, let us make a name for our sake. Let us make a tower. Let us become the the supreme and put ourselves on the throne. And God, in verses 5 through 9 in Genesis 11, he says, come, look at what the people have done when they are of one language. And so it says that God came down, specifically used the word came down, and he confused the language and he dispersed them. This idea of Babel, this idea that they called the Tower of Babel because they couldn't understand one another. And what's so interesting is the idea that that Tower of Babel is said to be the same location of Babylon, which we see as this consistent enemy of God and the enemy of God's purposes throughout the story of history. It starts at the Tower of Babel. So what we see here is that this origin of location-based worship, it's in this moment when people have the same language and try to raise up their own desires, their own enthroning of themselves, that's when God dispersed them. And now this is why there's different people groups with different languages from different places across the world because when there was one language, people, mankind, tried to elevate ourselves. So he dispersed them. And it created this void, it created this gap, it created where prejudice could take place between Samaritans and Jewish people and between a myriad of other different people groups throughout all of history and even in current times. And it's because there was a location-based worship that started and was spread and has now different than where God intended it to be. That we would, instead of having all the same language elevating ourselves, that we would elevate God and put him back on the throne. So here's what we see. Because God confused the languages, location-based worship and this idea of different faiths spread rapidly. But for us, we want to recognize that there had to be a solution for that. And the solution for location-based worship is destination-based worship. The idea of the destination is what we focus on when we worship. What does that mean? We'll dive into that into a moment. As you're filling out the destination-based worship, um, I, have a, uh, I have a little maze that I want you guys to, to look at on the side screens. And when you get it, it's not a super hard one, right? But when you get it, can you just raise your hand? Awesome. Okay. All right. Put your hands down. How many of you, in order to get to the top in the beginning, upper left to the lower right, how many of you started in the upper left in the beginning? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you started right smack dab in the middle? God bless you, David Johnston. Um, (laughs) A few of us did that. And how many of you started at the bottom right at the end? All right, let me give you a little hint. 
one of the things I learned with like we have uh, mazes with all these different books that um, you know the girls get. One of the quickest ways to so solve a maze, it's not the only way, but one of the quickest ways to solve a maze is to start at the end and to work backwards. Why? Because you're less likely to fall into all the traps and nooks and crannies when you start from the beginning. When you start from the beginning, if you're looking at here, you're like, okay, if I turn, you, you do this so quickly, your brain doesn't even recognize you're doing it, right? But you go, okay, I'm not going to go to the, the right there because that's going to get me to a dead end. And then if I go down, I go to the right, okay, that's another dead end. And then if I go to the bottom, and then I go, okay, that's another dead end. And then all of a sudden, you're kind of instantaneously, you're quickly doing this, but you're kind of stopping until you find the right spot. If you start from the end, you start from the destination, then it gives you a clear path because it eliminates some of the gaps, right? You're able to just go, okay, I'm not gonna fall for each of those little traps that are in the bottom of the dead ends or in the very top because I just know the path of where I need to go. Is it the only way to solve a maze? No. But is it a way that helps it to go quickly and it gives us a picture? Yes, because the truth is in all of our lives, if we're people who plan things out, then we might be someone, okay, I wanna be able to retire at a specific age. So if that's my destination, then I'm gonna know the end and then I'm gonna build it towards that until that point. And I'm not gonna get caught into the different dead ends, the different nooks and crannies that stop me from that because I have a plan in mind, I begin with the destination in mind and I work backwards from there. Maybe for some of you, it's you wanna to go to a certain college or study a certain degree, and so you say, okay, this is what I need to study, here's what I need to do, here's the amount of time that that's gonna to need to take, and here's how I go to pursue that, and you work backwards. So for all of us, it's recognizing that we need, it would help us as we are studying worship somewhere in the middle of that maze. We're not at the beginning of history and we're not at the end of history. We're somewhere else in the middle that we take a moment to see where is the destination? Where is the end goal? And then how do we, as people who love Jesus and pursue him wholeheartedly, how do we help build towards that to experience that? And so the origin of destination-based worship um, the origin of destination-based worship is found in Acts chapter 2. Now, let me, let me take a, a step back. The origin of that is that Jesus came and he died, and he lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death. He was raised to new life, and through that new life, we experience eternal life. But there was still the problem of how to get the word of the gospel out to the nations, how to get the, gospel, the word of the gospel out and the truth of the gospel out to those that had been dispersed from Genesis 11. And so what we see in Acts chapter 2 is a complete reversal, turning Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, onto its head. Because what it does... As Genesis 11 is a place where everyone had the same language, tried to build them their own name up, and was dispersed by God. Acts chapter 2 in the Pentecost is when people from many different languages were still at a location. They still went to Jerusalem to worship God there, but they were different languages. But then God went and like tongues of fire, like the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, the apostles, and then they went out and they were speaking the truth of the gospel in the different languages of all the different Jewish people that were there in order for them to experience and understand the truth of what Jesus did, who he is, what he's done, and how he loves, so they too could worship him. And so it became this moment where that which was once separating people in Genesis 11, our language that was dispersed and confused, is now that which was uniting people because the power of the Holy Spirit was able to move upon people, the apostles, and to allow all people from all nations to hear the truth of our all-loving God. And so because of that, Acts chapter 2, we see that now in Genesis 11, God came down to confuse a language. And then in Acts 2, it talks about how the Holy Spirit came down to unite people, to speak different language so that we would all be united in Christ. And so 
we see how they're the opposites of each other. We see how Babel is rectified and redeemed by the Pentecost in Acts 2. So then we ask this question, if it's not about a location, because again, that's Babel, that's Jerusalem, those are still both locations. If it's not about a location, what is our ultimate destination? What is that destination to which we see the end in mind and we aim for and we build towards? And so your next note there is the ultimate destination. Now, in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, uh, we read it earlier during uh, the time of worship. It says this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lord, the Lamb, I'm sorry. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That it's every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people. The destination is that we are worshiping with brothers and sisters in the Lord across this entire world, across time, because we recognize that it's not about prejudices and things that would break us down and separate us. That one of the most powerful moments in my life when it came to worship, specifically, and one of the most powerful moments in my life in general, it was in 2011 when I went and I was part of a team that went to Zimbabwe. Now, some people in this room have been to Zimbabwe. And we were in this, this little village of Rua, uh, about an hour or two away from Harare. And as we were there, uh, we were putting on a, like a leadership conference. And so me and the other team leader for our team, we would teach leadership um, things to diff- local pastors who walked there uh, in order to, to listen. Um, and then they, uh, we would have a time of worship in the evening. And so during this time of worship, people were being prayed for, uh, people were dancing, people were just, it was just this beautiful time, and, and they were singing in Shona. They were singing in the, in the language of the people there. And I have no idea what they're singing. I, I, I can't understand the words. And, and, you know, it's beautiful to know that people are praising God in other languages, even if you don't know what they're saying. Um, but... During the time of this song, and, and there are several songs there, and then it hit this point where I'm listening, and all of a sudden I'm like, I know this song. What is this song? And I can't put my finger on it. So they keep singing in Shona, and they keep singing, and I'm like, I, I know this song. What is this song? And then all of a sudden it hits the chorus, and when it hits the chorus, I recognize the melody. And the melody starts singing. As they're singing in Shona, I can sing in English. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And able to sing out there and singing and showing out, I'm singing in English. And it's this moment that the reason it's resonated in my life so, so long and so clearly is that it's a moment that we see the snapshot of heaven in Revelation 7. That we recognize that it's different tribes, different languages, different people, different nations that are able to not be dispersed by our desire to lift ourselves up on the throne, but are united in our desire to lift God up on the throne. And to recognize that it's no longer that which separates that is most important important, but it's that which unites us in the blood of Jesus Christ. Recognize that if we truly believe this as the body of Christ, if we truly lived this out, that there would be no prejudice, there would be no racism, there would be no classes, and there would be no differences based on socioeconomic classes. There would be nothing that would separate us from others who know the Lord and love him because we are all united, that every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group will be singing to the salvation belongs to God alone and to his land. That this would change everything because we recognize that 
It's not about a location. It's about that destination. It's about us doing the best that we can to build towards and move towards a unity within the church across both local church inside our church here, but a unity across the kingdom of God throughout all time that we would no longer be bound by that which divides us, but we would be bound by that which unites us. And so we recognize that we would no longer be dethroning God with our common language, but that would be putting God on the throne with our common language. And our common language isn't going to be English or Shona or French or Russian or Mandarin or any of the other things. Our common language is a language of worship. Our common language is a language of singing praises to our God and laying down our lives. And it's not just lifting up our voices, but man, that's part of it. But it's laying down our lives, recognizing that if God wants to send us to reach people across the world, if, if he would lay down his life for his people, then so will I. If he surrendered his life so that people may love him, so will I. If the wind goes where you send it, so will I. If the stars are made to worship, so will I. If we were created to help those in our lives, both next door and across the world, understand the destination to which we are all building. It's the throne room of God. And that gives us a great responsibility. In the same way that the apostles had a great responsibility to preach the gospel of Christ at Pentecost and throughout their lives until they were martyred, we too have a great responsibility to bring people along this journey with us. That we would not be a church that says, hey, come to my church only, because if we just encourage people to come to the church, then that's another location-based style of worship, right? We want to not just have them come to our church. We want that to be part of the community, but that's not the be-all, end-all of being a part of the body of Christ here, because you come to the church, but even more so, we go and be the church, that we recognize that we don't want to just be an invitational church that says, come here to where we are, but we are incarnational, that we would go to where you are. And then as we do this, we see the end in mind. We see the end of the maze. We see the destination of all of us, brothers and sisters, across all of time, across national boundaries, across all these different things that would separate us. And the same way that the Jewish people and the Samaritans had enmity, that all different enmities would be laying to the wayside because we are lifting up the one true name and putting him on the throne and not our preferences, not our desires, not what we want. So this morning, as we close... A couple questions. Have you allowed a location, a place, to become the basis of your worship? Do you only really worship God when you come into church? Do you only really worship God when you're at Hume Lake? Do you only really worship God when you are, you know, at the beach when you got baptized? I mean, do you only worship God at a place rather than recognizing that when God has the right place in our lives, we worship him anywhere? Because it's about where we're going. Do you... Recognize that if there's a worship that's in a certain place because I, you know, I only want to go to a certain church and sit in the certain row and sing these certain songs in a certain style with a certain key that reaches my certain voice and I certainly clap on time. If that's all the summation is of our worship, then again, it's location-based, not the destination. Because the destination means that it doesn't matter how in key we are. It's that with our voices, it matters whether or not we are in key with what God has for us and the life of focusing on him and not allowing that which divides us to stop us from being united. Is it something where we have allowed preferences to circumvent God's praises? Are we allowing our preferences to build up like the Tower of Babel so it's what we want and we are on the throne of what we want more so 
than uniting with our differences and recognizing that our differences unified in Christ is what makes the body of Christ so beautiful. Because worship isn't tied to a location, it's tied to a destination. And so in Galatians 3, we see that this idea that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, you know, there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, that we are all united in Christ Jesus. That those things that we think hold us back and separate us, that allows us to focus here on this location and not towards the destination of shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, worshiping salvation, belonging to him, belonging to God who sits on the throne, and bring as many people with us as we can. And so I have a, in my previous church, uh, my previous office, and I'll put it up at some point, but I have this wall um, that I have um, crosses from across the world. Now, I've not been to all these places, but I've been to several of them. But these are all crosses that are from different locations, different nations around the world. And you can see the strings where they go and, and um, I'll, I would love to show you my phone at another time a little bit more in detail, but you can see that there's one there that's uh, on the right-hand side. It's a, there's a big one uh, that's a black little point. Right to the next to the right uh, is one from Taiwan. That's just the Lord, uh, it's just the Good Shepherd, John 10, 11. It's I'm the Good Shepherd. It's in Taiwanese. I love that. That there's one that is the, uh, the Christ our Redeemer uh, statue from Brazil. It's a little keychain there. That there's one from the Bahamas on the left-hand side that's just uh, some drift wooden shells because why not? Um, but it's this idea that all these different nations represent Jesus different ways. They, they, they embody in different ways. They may worship him in different ways or, or with something that looks different than what we might assume to be normal. But all of those nations, and, and that's only like 30 or 40 out of the 200 nations, right? All of them, every single one of those nations that's represented on there is gonna have people from there that we'll be singing shoulder to shoulder within the destination. Every single one. That's our responsibility to go help, and that's our joy to be a part of. And so as we close, I just want to encourage us to remember that worship isn't tied to a location, it's tied to a destination. As, as we take hold of that, that that would change how we live throughout the week, that it would change how we live throughout our lives and that we would not build our lives so that we would be on top and enthroned and the captain of our own souls, but that in loving surrender, we would put God in the rightful place on the throne in our lives and bring as many people as we can along with him, with us. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for this opportunity to think about how big your kingdom truly is. God, we thank you that we don't have to go to a certain location, Lord, because Jesus, when you died on the cross and Holy Spirit, as you dwell within us as believers, that we are able to worship you wherever we are, God, because you are with us and that we recognize that our job, our responsibility and our joy is to bring those who are far from you near to you so that we may be able to experience that ultimate destination of worshiping with every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And that we talk about the salvation that comes from God on the throne and the lamb whom he sent. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You rose from the dead, conquering fear. Our Prince of Peace, drawing us here. Jesus, our hope, living for all who will see. Oh, Lord,
So as we leave with the word Jesus, the hope of the nations upon our lips, that we would recognize that ultimate destination, that it is our joy and it is our responsibility to see those who are far from God, whether they're here or across the nations. And it's our joy and our responsibility to bring those far from God near to God so they too can worship him and to experience that ultimate destination of worship that's not based on a location, but it's based on a destination in heaven with him. And so uh, we hope that you've been encouraged and challenged um, as we've gone through this series. Um, and so we're going to start a new series next week called The Signs of Generosity. We're very much looking forward to that. Um, and so uh, if you are, again, as a quick reminder, if you're a crew leader, we ask that you stay here at noon. Um, if you're able to help out next week, um, as Dan said, any time of the day, all day. Um, we encourage you to, to set that on your calendar. Um, but just know that you are prayed for, cared for, and loved before you show up into this room. And that God loves you very much. And he would love nothing more than to get deeper in a relationship with you. May it start here with our understanding of worship. And may we live changed lives when we leave here each and every day. Recognize that it's all seven days a week that we get to worship God. So thank you all so much for coming. God bless you all. And we'll see you next week.